Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We are presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. Would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Pain D C. I am excited to be joining you this week on a very busy news week uh, in America uh, and and particularly in the political news media. And I think I have a great guest to join me to cut through all the clutter and to dig deep on what's actually going on. I've got my first return guest on the podcast here, the great, the legendary Chris Matthews. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Great. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I'm, I'm uh, excited to speak with you, and I know the audience is excited to hear from you as well. Chris, there's a lot going on, and there are a couple of places I wanted to start. And particularly, you know, obviously this is going to relate to President Trump, but it also relates to journalism. I want to start with the story in The Atlantic that Jeff Goldberg released, I guess that was about two weeks ago now. This is related to the president's comments around, you know, uh, people who were killed in action being, quote, losers and suckers, which I almost can't believe I have to say out loud. It's just so harrowing and so um, disgusting to to have the idea that the commander in chief might say that. But it's reported out multiple sources and multiple other outlets have confirmed it. I guess I just wanted to get your framing on that story. One, just your reaction to it. And then also the does this puncture a hole in the Trump base, that vaunted Trump base that we're always talking about? It felt to me like Trump's team really went into rapid response pushback mode. Did you detect that as well? Yeah, I, they were. And I was listening to a conservative radio station up here in New Bedford. I'm up in Massachusetts. And I, uh, I was listening to their denial. And it is denial. There's no, there's no good argument uh, except defense and denial. Uh, I think you talked about the president as chair, commander in chief, and one role for our, our president, any president in this country, that he seems to be uh, especially uh, uninterested in performing, and that's head of state. Uh, apart from being head of his political party, ahead of being head of government, of, of, above being commander in chief or executive a chief executive of the uh, executive branch of the government, the president of the United States is our head of state. He speaks for the country. He is the voice of the country. And it seems to be the one role uh, that Trump is uninterested in performing. He has never accepted the fact that his job as president, one of his jobs, is to speak for the country in the way that... uh, uh, a president might say, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Terms, language about uh, this, when the Challenger space shuttle went down and, and Reagan spoke, or when Kennedy spoke uh, to the people of West, West uh, Berlin, and he said, we are one of you, uh, he Berliner. Uh, that role as head of state, he's, it's not, I don't know, incapable might be the wrong word. Uh, he doesn't have the aptitude for it. He doesn't know how to think of himself as the voice of this country. He was asked uh, a couple of weeks ago um, by a journalist, what do you have to say about the, the, uh, the death of uh, John Lewis? Now, d- did he know he was being asked to speak about the life and role, historic role of John Lewis as president? He didn't seem to understand that he was being asked that question as president. Like, you're supposed to say, politics apart, he played a major role in our civil rights history. He was beaten, he was courageous, he was there as a young man, he's been there as an older man, he's been a conscience. Whatever you wanted to say, it would be an objective statement as President of the United States. Trump said he didn't go to my inauguration, or he didn't speak, he didn't come to my State of the Union address. It was like an eight-year-old talking about the kid who didn't come to his birthday party, or didn't invite him to his birthday or her birthday party. He doesn't understand the role head of state is of head of state. And you're the one who's supposed to lay the wreaths at the tombs of the unknown soldier. You're the one that's supposed to speak on the 4th of July. That's a role of the president. And he, to, 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 to show disdain 
for people who died in the cause of the country is, it's awful. Want it, you want it not to be true that a president would, would speak that way of people who died in the, you know, I sometimes think, I'm no different than anybody else on this. I sometimes think of a guy, it's usually a guy, it could be a woman, who's on point right now, who's out there somewhere in Afghanistan in a hill somewhere, who hears people coming, suspicious hostile forces perhaps coming from, and he's all alone and he's there defending his country out in the middle of nowhere in some outpost. And he's there all alone and he's facing death. And he wants to know or she wants to know that we're with him. Even at that moment, we want, they want to know that even at this harrowing moment in their lives, this may be their last moment, that their, their country's behind them. And so it is, I'm not a complete naive person, but I find it almost unimaginable that any human being, any American would say, I don't have respect for that person who faced death for his country. And by the way, the idea of a loser is an absurd idea. This is in gladiatorial. When you die because of an, uh, a roadside bombing or, you know, an improvised explosive device, uh, I if you guys are that has nothing to do with cleverness or savvy. It just happens to people. They get killed in war. You know, a bomb drops and a guy gets killed. What do you mean by their suckers? What does that possibly mean? I don't know what it means. In other words, you were a sucker to join the military. Is that what you meant by that? I know people hate Trump, jump on it, and I guess it's, it's for somebody that's more comfortable to jump on him. I'm just, I find it awful. Well, this way. well, all the rhetorical questions that you're asking, I think, is, you know, that th- that is that is loaded in kind of just the response to something like that. I guess what I would also ask you and again, you know, your, your hat as a journalist, but also just as somebody who's just a political watcher who's been seeing this Trump train over the last five years and how this is built up. But then also just the history of politics. The fact that despite this type of revelation and we're going to talk about another revelation in a second the other big story of the week, the Woodward story. But I guess that this revelation, it doesn't seem like it's puncturing his base. It seems like, if anything, they're more emboldened. Yeah, I I was listening to the conservative radio up here. Look, um, what what grabs me, Joel, is the number of uncommitted voters. It's about 2, 2%. Everything's rock hard now. Um... There's not a, I mean, I think between now and the first debate on the 29th of this month, we're going to see the polls basically freeze because they do tend to freeze before a debate. People want to wait until they see the two combatants physically approach each other and see how they react to each other. I mean, if, if there's anybody out there still unsure, they're going to want to see them together before they make up their, their mind. But... Um, I am amazed that the, uh, when we remember the Access Hollywood tape, uh, tape showed up in the debate, showed up uh, before the uh, 16 election, and everybody said, oh my God, this is the end of the top Republican leaders, you know, the Speaker of the House, the top guy, all those people said, oh, this is the end of this guy. <laughs> didn't bat, it didn't, but it didn't. And that's the lesson. That's the lesson learned, right? Like those those folks who they they learned that lesson from the Access Hollywood tape and so many of the other you know Trump uh, you know controversies. I think the lesson that they probably took from that was we just need to kind of let this settle because at the end of the day, his base is about as resilient as anything we've seen in modern American politics. I uh, guess the other the other thing, Chris... Tom, Tom Friedman's column two, three days ago in the New York Times. It was basically about a, a, a book by Michael Sandel, of, I guess the sociologist up at Harvard. And it's about the main thing, the main point was the people don't like Trump. They hate the people that hate Trump. Right. And so it's really a resentment against the people they see as who are superior to them or minorities or whatever the people they don't like. But in many cases, it's they don't like the people that don't like Trump, and therefore they like Trump. It's too strange, but it's the I most sophisticated. It's, it's the most sophisticated anti-elite campaign I think we've ever seen in probably modern American politics. Right? I mean, that's what it feels like that we're living through. Is uh, one of the yeah, more. It's going to get yeah. worse too. It's going to get worse because he's losing, and uh, he's well below the march of error, and um, it's going to take more than a bump to get him back in the game. 
Uh, I thought the Republican convention was fine. I, I think it was a little bit of a, uh, it's questions that some people think it went up, some people didn't, but I think it came up a bit. I think they wanted to do, uh, they, they wanted to go back to their base. And, um, you know, like a, it's like a student council election in college or high school. Uh, the first thing you do is you get the people who are with you and say, are you with me? I just want to ask you to make a formal. I'm asking you to vote for it because I'm not taking it for granted. So you start with the people. So he was basically talking to his base. Secondarily, he was talking to people who have wavered from him in 16, who were voted from him in 16, but have wavered away, moved away from him a bit. But the fact that they voted for him once means they're the next best group to go after. And it was after those two groups at the convention. He's not going after persuadables yet. He's really still trying to get the, the one you're talking about, the hard rock supporters and those who had been hard rock supporters. He's still going to the same well. Chris, I don't think he's going to go. I don't I don't think he's going to go after those persuadables. Like even if you think about his strategy of going after, you know, allegedly trying to speak to black voters, I, I don't see him making a genuine outreach to black voters. That's no, about that's making. Right. That's, that's for making. Voters. Oh, no, totally. That's the, totally. That's, that's for the person who's not black who, who doesn't want to be seen as prejudiced. That's right. So when they see a lot of nobody, I don't know who wants to be seen as prejudiced, but um Whatever they are, your heart tells you or is, you want to be thinking that you you're a good person. So uh, you want to say you want to be uh, uh, you want to be given the okay, the good housekeeping seal. So he gave the good housekeeping seal with all this very impressive, I must say, people. I don't know who they are. <laughs> I don't know who those people were, but they were very impressive in that debate in that convention. They were all crisp. Economical in their in their presentations, almost uh, like they all had the same editor. Really well done. I mean, everybody was you know, active verbs, simple sentences, clarity. It was really well done. I you, mean, the Democrats weren't that. You're good. talking about the R. You're good. talking about the RNC, right? I thought it was skillful, but it was completely detached from reality. I mean, I've got Melania Trump, who's a birther, who's talking about. Uh, the need to bring people together across racial lines. Hello, like <laughs> you're married to the biggest well, bully in the history of American politics. Say that the ones in the two, it's not you. But I do think that it's the, the suburban person. You know, they may have left the city a generation or two ago because of white flight. They might have done. They may have a certain point of view of who their friends are. Obviously. There's circles they run in, but they don't want to be thought of as, as anti-black. That's for sure. Agreed. And, uh, and he's telling them, "Don't worry, you're not anti-black. You're not anti-black." Agreed. Chris, Chris, on the Atlantic story, I got one other issue I want to touch on, and I want to jump to the Woodward piece on, on the Atlantic story with the military piece. You know, I, something that I've been frustrated by, and I know so many other observers have been frustrated by, is kind of the the quiet. Um, I guess it's it, there's a military resolve to not get involved in politics outwardly. And I really do think we've kind of reached the tipping point where a Mattis, a, um, you know, uh, t- uh, gosh, the other military leaders, the Millies and, um, you know, yeah, folks like was, that. Millie was abused. Millie was abused. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But 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 he all of but all of these military, the, these military folks. They're they're quiet, and I think it, it. You're at the point now where being quiet is no longer acceptable. I, I I'm curious as to what you think of when you think about those military leaders and how they've really had to observe Trump break down these norms. Um, and and it feels like they're actually trying to push back off the record. I'm sure you've had, got your stories of people who you've talked to off the record, but just wanted your thoughts on kind of. The military leaders remaining quiet and kind of allowing these things to happen. Well, I can I, I imagine it has something to do with the society in which uh, a working a, a soldier or sailor lives. Uh, you are uh, imagine you're in a wardroom on a destroyer. Well, maybe most of the people in that wardroom of the officers are, are Republicans. Maybe uh, you figure that out, and you don't want to be since you're in the line of duty, you don't want to create conflict. So I just, and this is projection on my part, you don't want to make problems. So you're going to be careful. And because uh, you've got to fight on one side together. And uh, I, I imagine, you know, there's some people in journalism in our world which have 
are so careful that they don't even register to vote. Or they register, Tim Russell used to register nonpartisan. He'd register nonpartisan. And I mean, they'd give up their right to vote in a primary so that they could <clears throat> excel, really, as nonpartisan. Uh, I don't know. I don't live in that world. I don't know if everybody talks politics. So I understand. I, I, it's, hard, it's hard for me to understand it. But yeah. I remember Colin Powell, for example, one of the great military guys of our generation, that he said he, he basically only recently has come out politically. Um, he came out for Obama, but he came out, he, I think he's come out for Biden now. Um, I don't know. Yeah. They're used to taking orders, they're used to being, uh, you know, spit and polish, and, 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 and everybody in uniform wears the same uniform, they have the same haircuts. Uh, they, they wear the same ties, the same boots. I mean, there is sort of a uniformity to the military that comes with it. And maybe that's what I'm, we're talking about here. You're not supposed to have interesting, uh, idiosomatic attitudes about things. You're not supposed to stand out, you know? I guess that's what I like it is. It's, I, you know, I don't think I would have fit in the military very well. <laughs> so I was in the Peace Corps. I, one thing about the military, I, was the, I would not want to be in the military with some drill instructor who figured out that I was laughing in line, you know. I'm, I'm pretty sure I flunked out of RLTC myself, so I, I'm yeah. I'm right so there you with you. Know my attitude, and you don't want a military leader to know your attitude. You want to keep that completely innocent and uh, unknown. Do you think this? I think it's still going to be hard for uh, officer to uh, express a political point of view. I think that's still verboten. Uh, Millie, Millie was used, and he's trying to make himself unabused, um, but. Um, that was really an awful thing to do to have him walk across Lafayette's Fair with him and acted like he was in charge of national security at that point and things he doesn't understand. I'll just say this is more of a universal statement. I think he went to school in business. I don't think he went to college in the sense of liberal arts. I don't think he knows the history of the country. I don't think he understands. He would say things like, did you know that Lincoln was the founder of the Republican Party? Yes, Donald, we all knew that. <laughs> you just learned that. <laughs> There's so much he doesn't know about our, our collective history because he's never seen any money in it. Chris, I think those are some good observations. I want to keep us moving here because i got so much I want to cover with you. Um, let's jump to talk about this Woodward story that blew up Washington again. It's like... I. I I swear, every week there's a new thing that uh, kind of explodes the zeitgeist. And Bob Woodward did it again. I mean, is is kind of the headline for me. First off, I guess just as a journalist, how does he keep getting this access? Can you can you can you explain that to me? Why why would why would that well, he's a operation? Guy. First of all, it's very important. That we were talking about the military. Bob was an officer in the, in the I believe the Navy. Uh, I think that's always been a. Uh, a connected point for him with his sources, like when he, he found Deep Throat, and uh, he was a, he was a, a military officer for a while. He was uh, coming to the White House. And he met people. Uh, he, that opened some doors for him just being a military guy. I think in this case, he has Lindsey behind him. Lindsey Graham, right? In this case, didn't he open the door for him? I think Lindsey was the one who who suggested the idea for the meeting. Yeah. And I also think he's probably the best known journalist of our time. The most respected. Uh, not really a mark on him. He's also an engaging guy. He's a friend of mine. He's a very charming guy. He's tough as nails, but there's nothing unpleasant about Bob Woodward. But Chris, he already Bob burned him was, once. Chris, he burned him once already. He already... <laughs> you know, I've heard that the, the, the psycho goggle is that Donald Trump thinks he can charm anybody. Okay, I, I don't know if he thinks that. Uh, it's always the question with an... You know, I was in press relations. I, I know... It's always the question of whether you take a chance or you don't take a chance. Would you rather get your point of view in or not get your point of view in? If you say, I'm not going to talk to them, then everybody else has their point of view in. Well, you had your chance, you didn't take it. But if you do put your voice into it, you're basically leaving it up to the journalist how you're going to be portrayed. That's just a fact. It's just the fact of the business, how you're being portrayed. But Woodward has tapes of, what, all but one of these interviews? 18. Um, 18 different tapes, I believe the number was. And if... The way I look, I project this to the first debate because if uh, if I'm former Vice President Joe Biden, I want this whole debate to be about coronavirus and how it was mishandled. And so I have a, a ready weapon here. That's Bob Woodward's, and I would come out and say, 
Well, you told Bob Woodward this is serious business, and yet you didn't tell the country what you told Bob Woodward. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I think he's going to be a, a character in this debate, a player, Bob Woodward. It's interesting yeah, to me. It's, it's interesting to me, Chris. Um, coronavirus, you, you know, you, you touched on this, and I'm, I want to touch more on Biden later, but just here, just talking about Trump and his standing in the race. Coronavirus is really the it, it is the anchor that is dragging everything down for the president, because right. even if you like like if you're let's say you're a senior, you're 68 years old, you're living in Florida because you don't want to pay the taxes. You kind of think that Bernie and the lefties, you know, like whatever you've got, whatever kind of crazy idea about people on the left are. But you haven't been able to see your grandkids in six months. And three of your friends have died in nursing homes. And I, like this is something that it. You, you can't escape it based on partisan ID. It cuts across and it's not even something that Joe Biden has to necessarily be the narrator on. Joe Biden just kind of has to be along for the ride on the coattails. And I say that crudely. I know that's not how the Biden camp thinks about it, but it, it is coronavirus is coronavirus is really in effect. It is the Iranian hostage crisis of 1980 for Jimmy Carter to me. It is the thing yeah, that that's, that has swallowed up everything. Yeah. Well, the winner, I've been, I've been sitting here watching some of the old debates, and I recommend anybody do this who wants to figure out presidential politics. Just go on Google and look up, you know, Reagan Carter debate, uh, Kenny Nixon debate. They're all there in their entirety. No interruption. Just sit and absorb. And, and look at, so that, uh, you know, watch the Clinton, but George Bush Sr. one. Uh, and Clinton Trump, the Hillary Clinton Trump, they're all there. And you can sort of look at patterns. Uh, the one I'm working on now, the pattern is the winner of the debate is the person who champions what the public already senses. Uh, the, the, if you, if the sense of weakness that we felt, the hostage crisis. And, and Reagan uh, well, exploited that. He championed the, the anger we had about being the the humiliation we felt about that. Uh, he was very good at that. And he didn't knock his opponent as a person. He knocked him for not dealing with the challenge we all face. And I think the smart move is for Biden to champion the public's concern about coronavirus and the danger of it and peripherally knock Trump toward the way he's handling it. Not just, don't, just, don't get small about it, just dump on Trump make the point that something has to be done and wasn't being done, it needs to be done about this coronavirus, better handling of it, and as you do that, take a knock at the, at the president. I think that's what we want. Reagan was very smart about the threat of the Russians. He didn't say Carter was a bad guy, he just said, we gotta be tougher in our negotiations for assault too. We have to be stronger against this very strong adversary. So you have to take the public sense. Kennedy won his debate with Nixon, not just as better looking or something like that, but because he had a sense of the country. The sense of the country in the late 50s was we were losing a step in the Cold War. The Russians were catching up to us. And we were losing the, the advantage, advantage we had coming out of World War II, slowly losing it. And that sense of, and Kennedy said, let's get this country moving again. And he caught the sense of the country and championed it. So you don't create a new reality in those debates, and we're gonna face one soon, three of them. You, you champion the sense the country already has. So what's the zeitgeist today, Joe? The zeitgeist today is we have not handled this coronavirus well, and it may be continuing to kill us to the point where you may lose as many people as we've lost already again by the end of the year. And uh, we need a better leader to deal with this. But I think that's the sense the country has. And if Biden is successful, he will champion that sense. I, th I think that's right. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked to some pollsters, particularly some who are close to the, uh, the the Biden camp. And what they'll point to me, they'll point four key indicators. And I'm not sure if you've keyed in on this, but I'll, I'll share this with you here. There are four groups that Romney won in 12, that Trump won in 16, that that Trump is currently losing to Biden. It's seniors. It's college educated voters. It's people in the suburbs and it's independents. And Biden's winning all four of those groups right now. Romney won in 12, uh, Trump won in 16, Trump is losing them right now. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of, as I've been looking through all the different data points, 
that to me is a very important indicator of where this race is because those groups i think are going to tell you so much about what the map looks like um especially in these areas kind of across the the upper midwest where the race is really going to be fought right in minnesota um in michigan and in uh, wisconsin and in pennsylvania in central pennsylvania right that race i think is going to come down to those groups of people and, and the president is behind with all of them also another group the jump ball 50 50 voters who kind of dislike both candidates right like a pox on all of your houses those voters went i think it was six you know 60 percent to trump last time it's completely flipped on the on its head this time for biden biden's up by anywhere from 15 to 25 points depending on the state with those voters the president is completely underwater with all of these different advantages that he had within the electorate. And really, to me, that's the race in a nutshell. Yeah, I think he's under, I think he's um, failed politically as president. And um, I don't know how it would have been if there hadn't been coronavirus. It may have been, it would have been a closer election. But I think the fact that he never really reached 50%. And the other poll that this really has to do with country rather than the, the, the candidates you have to think about the country because they're like you're going back to the country forget the candidates then we'll get to the candidates the country believes like 80 to 20 we're going in the, we're not going in the right direction and that's that's a profound reality it's an nbc wall street journal question we got this country going in the right direction and the fact is nobody thinks we're doing a good job of this thing and uh and he's the man on watch so Trump is going to have to take the beating for this. And so I think if I were Biden in the debate, I'd talk about the direction of the country. I wouldn't focus on Trump initially. I'd talk about the problems we face right now. And I'd say the unemployment, the, the, the destruction of small business, the, uh, the perhaps end of a lot of retail enterprise in this country. It's all going to be gone, a lot of it. All the restaurants, everything. But may never come back again. Uh, and... And who's responsible for that? Is it just an act of God? Did it have to be this way? Or is somebody's or could have been handled better? And then you get the Trump. That's, I, that's if I were by, that's how I'd work my way to Trump. I wouldn't just be at hominem. I'd work my way through the way people normally. We wish we had a better president the last four years that we have had. And I just think he's failed politically as president. And uh, Biden should beat him. But... Uh, we have to see. Biden will be on the stage, too. And by the way, I will predict this, that Chris Wallace will be just as tough on Biden as he is on Trump. Uh, he better, Biden better be ready for that, because all the good journalists up on those stages, and Kristen Welcome will be just as tough on him, I think, because they should be. And so he better be ready to play some defense with the, with the uh, moderators, too. It's not going to be easy at all. I think that's right, Chris. And that actually, look, that rolls me into the discussion I kind of wanted to have to, you know, kind of finish off our conversation here. I want to spend the last part of our time really talking about Joe Biden, about the the next 50 or so days and what this thing is going to look like down the stretch. I want to take a really, really quick break and we'll come right back. This is Joel Payne. I'm the host of the Here Comes the Pain podcast. We're here this week with veteran legendary journalist Chris Matthews. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. back to the conversation we were having before the break and turn to just really just talking about the race at large you know chris you are said you're famed and so well known for really being able to dig into the political trends and as i look at this race as a democrat as a political strategist over the last 50 days here is what i've been saying um i'm a i'm a political contributor for cbs news um and on the recent coverage that i've been on i've been saying biden needed to give democrats about give or take six or seven good hours this summer and this fall. You go back to when he locked up the nomination in South Carolina, he gave you 30 good minutes of, of speech there. When you look at the debates with Bernie Sanders, the one-on-one -on -one debates, when it got down to it, he delivered there. He delivered at the DNC speech. He delivered with the protest um, unrest speech about a week and a half, two weeks ago when he was being pushed to be more, um, you know, to be more aggressive and pushing back on the violent protesters, right? I think Biden has kind of delivered in every moment that he's been asked to, 
right? And, and, and acknowledging that the campaign cycle has somewhat come to him in the fact that he's not being asked to do 40,000 person rallies three times a day, like you might be asking a normal cycle. But Biden's giving you those, those hours. I think now you, he's got to give you three good debate performances, and that's really it. He's got to be able to stand up against the president, and you, you made some of these points before the break, deliver a message and really contextualize the race for Americans. So that's kind of how I see the race is that Biden has met the challenge at every step of the way, and he's been rewarded for staying true to who he is politically, even at times when they were tough. What do you see as you look at the, the last stretch of this race? What are the things you're going to be looking out for? I think obviously coronavirus is going to be a part of it, but what's on your mind as a you know political expert that you are? That's funny. I was uh, I was looking at old boxing yeah, matches. Uh, everything's on, everything's on YouTube now. I was looking at an old boxing match between the, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, a guy from Camden, New Jersey, Jersey Joe Walcott, Joe Walcott, and he was being challenged by this guy from Massachusetts, Rocky Marciano, and he had, he was ahead on points all the way through. To the 14th round, the 15th round fight, and all of a sudden this guy Marciano throws a punch that you just can't believe. It was like a, it was like a hammer blow out of nowhere. He thought the guy was down. He'd already been knocked down a couple of times early in the, in the fight, and uh, I think that's the only thing Biden has to worry about. It is a hammer blow, something where Trump says something about coronavirus being a, being the being caused by the Chinese government in Beijing by President Xi. They did it. They did this with reckless disregard for the rest of the world. They kept it secret. Um, and your son, a member of your family, in fact, trouble said like this, your family was being paid a lot of money by Xi. And their response, and you're responsible for this coronavirus because the money you were being paid by this country that covered it up. Something that's so personal to Trump, I mean, and to, uh, to Biden, that Biden just explodes. I, that's all I can think of. I was watching Trump the other night. I think he's holding this back. He's going after the Chinese, blaming them for Corona. He goes after Hunter Biden, the, pre, the vice president, former vice president's son. But he doesn't quite tie it together. He doesn't quite say it's your son getting paid off in a corrupt deal that's behind this whole horror that's cost all these lives in this country. How rough will he play? Well, we know Trump would play as tough as he can. I got to believe that's coming. And that will be the hammer blow. And the question is not, would he do it or not? Because of course he'd do it, because he'll say anything. But how does Biden react? How calm can he be? How cool can he be in, in, in responding to that in an intelligent, sensible way and doesn't just take it too much to heart? You know what I mean? Just, well, <laughs> well, Chris, the question this is... This is just a bad how? guy. This is just a bad guy that's doing bad stuff. I'm not going to take it personally. I'm now going to react as a professional politician and respond to his worst blow, and I'm going to come out on top because I'm going to do it the right way. I mean, that's what a pro would do. Well, the real question, I think, is do voters want, you know, there's there's this thing where voters, remember Biden had the exchange with the, I think it was a primary voter in one of the early states, and he got plotted because he essentially cussed the guy out because the guy was talking about Hunter, I think. And he cussed the guy out and he got he, he got a lot of attaboys and a lot of pats on the back. And I guess my yeah, question would be, is that what voters if you curse him out, it's one thing. If you curse him, but if you implode. Yeah. You, know, if you get emotional. Right. Uh, you, just, you know, and Muskie, uh, I worked for Muskie from, from Maine. He was a, an amazing legislator, but he had a very hot temper. And uh, the New England, the, the New Hampshire newspaper up there had a uh, new leader. They had made fun of his wife, said she was a lowbrow, basically. Jay Muskie was a, she talked bad, did bad language, she was, she smoked or whatever. They just trying to make her into a low a lowbrow, if you will. And uh, he got very emotional. He's standing out on the truck, he had gone in front of the newspaper, he stood there on a flatbed truck in the snow, and he's, he was so angry that, that, that David Broder of the Washington Post said he was crying. Well, yeah, that's what Trump wants. That's the moment Trump wants. How else is he going to win this election? But Chris, these things Unless are so he interesting. His opponent to implode and do something that's so emotionally uh, uncontrollable that you go, wait, I can't be president. This is all interesting to me because, because here's the thing, Chris. So you're talking about this. And by the way, I listened to your podcast, the So You Want to Be President podcast. And I think one episode you talked about the Dukakis race, I believe. 
And yeah. remember Dukakis when he got the question about the death penalty and what if Kitty Dukakis yeah. was a victim and he gave kind of this low energy, famously low energy <laughs> answer. Antiseptic is the word. And there you like, go. Bernard. He's so funny. Those things call him Bernie. But the country is so funny Bernard. about I've these. I've always been against capital punishment. Yeah, the country's so funny about these moments, though, Chris. Like, because sometimes they want the fighter, they want the ass kicker, and then sometimes they yeah. want the the noble statesman who's gonna, you know, just take a beat and not let it. They 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 don't want them to show fire. I think right now the country's in the mood for stability. So I think, to your point, I think Biden would have to remain calm under whatever Trump throws at him, whether it's something along the lines of what you said or something else. But the country is so fickle about that, depending on the person. And maybe it's also the they attitudes they have. After. They don't know what they want until they hear it. And right. Like, yeah, I like that. But then we can predict the future of their own emotions sometimes. And I think if he says, there you go again, I, that's you know what I would have said. You know, We've watched you, Mr. President, for four years, and that's the kind of thing we've come to expect from you. Yeah, something uh, like, I'd expect that from you, Donald. Do. My son had nothing to do with coronavirus, and you know that, and yet you showed the indecency to connect him to the deaths of 200,000 Americans. The indecency to connect him with those deaths. But, yeah, he has to be able to calmly indict him uh, in the way that, you know, Joseph Watson done Joe McCarthy back in the 50s. I mean, have you no decency? The country, again, he, all Biden has to do is champion the sense the country always has, already has, which is there's something indecent about this president, something wrong about the fact he's in the White House. And, and, and to, to, to voice and champion that, that belief that you're, you're the wrong guy to be there because you say things like that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's yeah. easy for me or you to sit here and say how <laughs> we would do it if we were Joe Biden, but, you know, he's going to have to stand there under the lights with probably 100 million people watching up against a guy who's willing to troll him for an hour to get him in the last half hour. Who will literally say anything. Yeah, he'll say anything. Yeah, he'll say anything. Right, right. It'll be It'll be a marvel to watch. Um, Chris, the one place that I've noticed that the president has remained resilient, even with coronavirus, and he's still hanging on by a thread in terms of public sentiment, is with the economy. And we've seen, yeah, obviously, the economy is, you know, look, we lost however many millions, tens of millions of jobs towards the beginning of this crisis. And some of them have begun to come back. And I think, look, the nervous Democrat, which is my favorite um trope in American politics is like the nervous Democrat that that's afraid of their own shadow, like uh Punxsutawney Phil on Groundhog's Day. Um, <laughs> like the nervous Democrat yeah. is just, they, they just, they are worried. Here's what I think. I think Trump spooked everybody in 2016 because it was such a surprise and it was so unforeseen. I think in reality, it's most likely what's going to happen is Joe Biden's going to take him to the woodshed. I think if you just look at the dynamics of this race, that is probably the most likely thing to happen. But most people don't want to really say that out loud. And there's this, you know, well, the economy could turn around um, and these quiet Trump voters who quietly kind of like what he's all about. They're not being picked up in any of the opinion research polling, etc. Just, I guess I'd be curious as to kind of your feedback on that. Do you really believe in this myth of kind of like the hidden Trump voter? And do you do do you tend to find yourself questioning um, what you're what you're seeing from the polling trends? Look, I think Trump knows what you're talking about right now. He knows he's in a hole. That uh, let's just take a state like North Carolina. Uh, in a normal presidential year, the Republicans should win North Carolina. It's just it's a more conservative thing. I went to grad school there. I love Chapel Hill. I love being down here. I know it's a more conservative state than most of the country, but it's it's not right wing. It's not that way. It's right of center. It's a right of center state. The other day, the fact he's down there and making fun of uh, Kamala's first name, saying Kamalia and stretching it out like that, and making trying to ridicule her, and I don't know what he, I don't know to put words to or point, but he was trying to. It was a desperate grade school kids thing to be saying when you're losing the fight people that have to talk like that to make fun of a person's na name or ethnicity or whatever he's clearly desperate and uh, that's the kind of thing you do when you're losing 
and you have to do anything to hold together that hardcore crowd of yours. I mean, it is really pathetic that he was doing that. Why is he going after Kamala and not Biden? Because he doesn't really have a, a case on Biden. Biden is too familiar, unthreatening, maybe too normal for him to go after. There are too many people in the country like Joe Biden uh, to go after him. So he gets somebody with an interesting sort of you know, South Asian name and he distorts it and makes it into some other kind of name or whatever. I don't know what he's up to, but he, I watched it the other day. He just drags it out, Kamalia, in a really ridiculous fashion. What's he up to? Is he up to the old birther thing? I Probably. mean, of course. Making well, her well, exotic. Well, Chris, Making I mean, what, what's he what's he up to talking that's, about? That's desperate. That's desperate. Yeah, what's he up to talking about Cory Booker and housing? I mean, like the, the thing that's hilarious to me about this it's it's a, it's disgusting, obviously, but it's hilarious because, I mean, Cory Booker, the, like the boogeyman, he is not. Okay, so like, he's one of the like, most likable, <laughs> affable, charming. What's the right word? You want to it, hang out with a guy. He the is. You meet him. You want to hang he out is with no him. one's boogeyman. Cory Booker is no one's boogeyman, and the yeah. the fact that. It, it just tells you so much about how Donald Trump thinks, though. The fact that, like, he... I would be offended if I was a part of this vaunted Trump base. Be like, that's what you think I want to hear? Is just you throwing the most notable black man in politics you can think of and putting him in a tweet? Because that's, that's what it reads like. It reads like, I need a black guy to scare up these white people. No, it's a Chris, it's a Chris Rock joke. I mean, yeah. Chris Rock would make great work. It's make great use of Trump as his, as his uh, material. Yeah, I, I think you're right about yeah. that, Chris. You've been so kind with your time. I want to I want to f- um, finish here with one kind of final little mini topic, and it's related to what we've been talking about, and it's it's the down ballot races, right? I mean, look, we all get yeah. focused on the president and and Joe Biden, and obviously that is the entree, but it should not be lost on us that the Senate is very much in the balance. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi's probably pretty safe. You look at most House race watchers, um, she's probably pretty safe to kind of get another term as speaker, probably. But the Senate, uh, I guess there's a couple states that jump out to me. You talked about North Carolina. I mean, Maine, Arizona, Colorado, um, you know, even Iowa. Of those kind of states where there's a vulnerable incumbent, most of them vulnerable Republicans, which do you see is the most likely to flip? And I know you've probably got special insights into some of those states that I just mentioned. Well, not especially, but I think I think they need to pick up a net four or net three. So they're probably going to have a challenge in Alabama with Jones. So that, let's say they lose that one. So they got to pick up four. Uh, I think they're going to start with Kelly, Arizona. Arizona's in the bag pretty much. Yeah. I think it's in there because it's been there since the beginning. It hasn't. It's a, she's not a great candidate, so that's not a good one. I think the other one is uh, here. And I, first of all, I think Tillis is going to lose North Carolina. I just think that's a, become a very much of a flipping state. Uh, uh, I don't think a North Carolina is a right wing state at all. I think it's a. It's got the research triangle. It's got Chapel Hill. It's got Duke. It's got that very intellectual effort down there in the academic world. I, I, I think it's a state that is uh, not thinking much of Tillis. Uh, I don't think he'll win. Um, I think that uh, I, I think that uh, it looks good for the Democrats in Colorado. I think we might see a surprise in Montana because Bullock is a state that has fewer people than Delaware, for example. It's got less than just about 910 million people or something. 960, I think it is. It's, it's not... Uh, it's, a, it's almost, it's, you can get, it's like South Dakota, you can walk around and meet many of the voters. It's like running for the House. And so I think Bullock as a governor is going to have a good chance, a good chance. I think um, Maine, I think, I uh, think so Maine is a, Maine is Maine, a thing. Maine, I just thought, yeah. okay, so I've always sort of liked this Susan Collins. I know her bitch. She's a former staff from the Hill. She's a moderate. She's had a, the trouble is there comes a time when the moderates where don't really reflect their states, their time is up. Gordon Smith uh, in, in, in Oregon was like that. You can be really good, uh, Sanudu, young Sanudu in, in New Hampshire. You can be really good, but you just don't fit the state up. Blanche Lincoln. Like happened to Blanche Lincoln about a decade ago. Right, I know. Yeah, yeah. certainly the people see your voting record doesn't conform to theirs, and you're gone. So, uh, in Arkansas, yeah. So, it, it, it's the people, and people, people like governors like Baker, they like them. Party doesn't mean much 
in the governorship. But it means a lot in the Senate, and ideology matters. And eventually, they discover the fact you don't fit, and you're gone. So I think she might be in that category, but I will tell you, that election will be the closest name. Uh, I don't know about Iowa, but uh, Ernst, I think Ernst could win. Uh, Iowa's a conservative state. Yeah, so I would say the best bet for the four would be the three mountain states, uh, Arizona, uh, uh, Colorado, and then uh, Montana. And then I think the other option for the four is, is certainly North Carolina. But they've got some options, and there are going to be some surprises. And um, I don't I don't know if Harrison will win or not, but they certainly get fighting, giving the fight of his life down there against Graham. Um, I think it's going to be interesting, but I think it's going to be very hard getting any big legislation through a Congress that has 50-50 in the Senate. Uh, it's just going to be very hard. You know, you want to get rid of the filibuster, and you're going to do it with a nuclear uh, move just to just get rid of it with 50 votes. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get you're not going to get unanimity among the Democrats. There's a lot of institutionalists there. Uh, yeah, of course, if it gets to a point where they're trying to get something through really important in terms of the country, in terms of its uh, economic life, something they'll probably do it through reconciliation, which is 50 votes in the VP. Um, Here's what I think. If the Democrats win at the presidential level, which I think they will, they'll get the Senate too. And there's just a strong, strong pattern there where the Senate votes go with the, with the presidential. So I would say... Right, I don't I think, think you're going to... win. I think he'll pull it in 50-51 votes, yeah. I don't think you're going to see a ton of ticket splitting because Trump is not allowing these Republicans to run away from him. Susan Collins' problem is she has to run close to the president to get the Republican turnout that she needs to mix in with the independent and moderate turnout. Cory Gardner's got the same problem in Colorado where Trump won't let him run away from him. Whereas Obama in like 10, or rather, I'm sorry, in 12, let people run away from him, right? That's most presidents are like, do what you got to do to win your race. Nancy Pelosi would even tell people, run against me back home if you yeah. need to, right? But Trump won't let his people do that. And I think that's going to end up costing them. I don't think you're going to see a ton of ticket splitting. And I think the ones that you point out are right. I think I'm a little less bullish on Montana. I think I'm a little more bullish on Maine. Um, and I think that the best thing that happened for the president is that his his buddy in Kansas, Chris Kobach, lost. Because I think that that would have been a real tough one for them to keep if Kobach was the standard bearer out there. Um, but I think... He may be right. Yeah. Yeah, he's smarter than me. So here's what I say. I learned watching the primary up here for the Senate between Markey and Kennedy. Yeah. The message matters. A good a good senator who wants to talk about message, it really is in the office for the good reasons, who's there to do things, it's not about him, can win against extraordinary odds. I am so impressed with my friend Ed Markey because of what he was able to do. To run a campaign on the issues, a positive campaign that matters that these issues matter, whether it's whether it's climate or whatever, he he was the real deal up here, and this was not a negative campaign. Joe Kennedy will be fine, whatever he does, but the fact that they chose the guy in this case, who really is committed on the issues, and I've known the guy for half a century. He is the most committed legislator, the most progressive, committed progressive I know, and so I, I, I'm glad to see the voters responded to a positive progressive campaign and didn't go with the sort of the uh, the more superficial thing of Camelot and all that stuff. And it was very impressive. Of yeah, I think it's, it's I think it's just so interesting that Kennedy almost fell victim to the same thing that his uncle fell victim to 40 years yeah. ago, which is he could never explain why is it so god-awful urgent to get Ed Markey, Ed Markey out of the Senate. He never made that I case. People, you're so right. I said to people, when you run for office, do yourself a favor before you announce. Stay up alone at night. Have a couple drinks if you want. And around one in the morning, say, ask yourself, why am I doing this? And clock the response. Find out what it really is. If it's just personal ego, fine. Say that. If it's just personal ambition, fine. Say that. At least you know why you're running. You're not BSing yourself. And if you do have a cause that's worth losing, worth dying for, basically, are you willing to find, find that? Find that thing that says to me, this is why I'm risking all the humiliation of running for office, all the bad stuff that's going to be thrown against me, right or wrong. I'm willing to take that in my face because this is more important. Find that thread, that heart of why you're doing this thing. And if you can't come up with a reason, don't run. 
<laughs> it really is that simple. No, it really it really is that simple, Chris. Um, considering that the first place that I met you was when I was a senior at Brown University, I was student body president. I can tell you that is what you do have to do. You have to say, "Why am I running? What am I? What am I doing? What's the thing?" Even it, it goes back to grade school. It goes back to college. It goes back to like your first freeholders race, right? Like, what's the thing that I present that the other candidate can't? And if you can't answer that, By the then, way, yeah. Were you there for my speech? I uh, was. Dustin was there. I right? was. So I was at the table. I, I sat at the table I with think you. That might yeah. be the best speech I ever gave in my life. You, think, you gave was, a good. It was off I the record, so I'll, I'll respect the. I, I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't betray the 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 confidences. But it was a great speech, and it was about kind of. It was around 2004, so it was really a primer for what to expect with Bush v. Kerry. And I thought you gave a great speech, and it was a it was a memorable part of my senior year. So I really enjoyed that. Um, that's a great place to end, Chris. And um, I I tell you, this is just always a joy to get to talk to you. Um, and I'm glad that uh, you had such a great response the last time you joined the podcast. It was by far my most downloaded, most popular podcast. I'm sure we'll double that this time. Um, real quick, what are you up to? What's any anything to watch out well, for I just from you? Finished, I just finished, finished book number nine. Okay. Uh, Four hundred and thirty-nine pages of manuscript. It's about sort of. A, it's called this country. It's about my whole life watching the country, trying to figure it out, trying to figure its voice. Fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, tens, up to twenty. It's all about what I've in different lucky places I've been, whether it was this writer for the president or top aide to the speaker or just somebody reading the papers uh, or being an African in the Peace Corps I, it's what I've been able to learn about the country and uh, I think it's going to work it's definitely going to work so uh, there's a picture on the cover I hope of my, my two of my brothers and I with my mom standing at the foot of uh, Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial and it's about just somebody who's been trying to figure out the country since they were born basically so I hope it works. I think uh, stuff, I think I think most people like me who've been watching you for a long time would say you've got a pretty good uh, got a pretty good lean on what's going on in the country, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Uh, thank, thank you, you so much, Chris Matthews, the great Chris Matthews, former host of MSNBC Hardball, uh, many other affiliations, the San Francisco Examiner, Tip O'Neill, Ed Muskie, and of late the author of This Country, which I will be purchasing and will encourage all of my listeners to do as well. This is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Appreciate you joining me this episode. And with that, we'll sign off. God bless and have a great one. Thanks so much.